2: It's a National Heritage Corridor spanning 35 eastern Connecticut towns and is called the Last Green Valley. But what exactly is it, what does it do for the region, and why is it so important? We find out. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It's called The Last Green Valley, a swathe of dark night sky in the coastal sprawl between Boston and Washington, D.C., and it's also a National Heritage Corridor, one of just 62 areas in the entire United States. So what does it do and why is it so important? I caught up with The Last Green Valley Executive Director Lois Brunich and Chief Ranger Bill Reid to find out more to you both. Thank you for welcoming us to this beautiful part, obviously, of northeastern Connecticut. Lois, I want to turn to you first. The last Green Valley, we see signs about it driving up and down like I-395 and and in the various other places. It's a National Heritage Corridor. What does that mean?
1: (laughs) A National Heritage Corridor is a really unique place. It's sort of like a national park in your own backyard where we work very closely with the Park Service. In fact, we're part of the National Park Service system, but the federal government doesn't own any property. We're a non-profit that was designated in the federal legislation that set up the National Heritage Corridor, and our job is to really connect people to the unique resources in this region. You know, we're blessed with so many natural resources, agricultural resources, historic and cultural resources, that it's our job to connect and promote and uh, really take care of the things that make this region special.
2: It's A big undertaking, we're going to get to Bill in a moment because Bill knows how big this undertaking (laughs) is. This spans, if I've got this correct, 35 towns in northeastern Connecticut and south-central Massachusetts. That's a big area.
1: It certainly is. (laughs) And you know, all of the towns have their own unique personalities and characteristics, but what we tried to do is look holistically at the region. When the Heritage Corridor was first designated. It was called the Quinnipiac and Shetucket Rivers Valley National Heritage Corridor. So we're connected by the major rivers in the area. These 35 towns are a big part of what is the Thames River Watershed. It's the Quinnebog River on the eastern side and the uh, Willamantic, Natchog and Chautucket Rivers on the western side. They come together in Norwich, become the Thames River, which heads all the way out to Long Island Sound. So our original designation was probably a good moniker for the way the waterways connected us. You know, today we're the last Green Valley because we are still incredibly rural. We are 84% forest and farm. And if you looked at a satellite photo that stretched from Boston all the way down to Washington, D.C., you'll see all the lights at night, except for us. We're this dark notch in the region because we're so forested. We just don't have the same kind of intense development that we have surrounding us. So we a really unique landscape in um, southern New England.
2: We're going to get into that a little bit more. Let's bring in... Bill Reed, Chief Ranger for the Last Green Valley. What do you do, Bill, and how do you do it? Because you're one person and it's what, yeah. uh, 1,100 square miles.
0: Yeah, I, I really like the way you pronounce Chief Ranger, too. I really appreciate that. Basically, I'm the, I'm the person who does programs, but I rely on a wonderful cadre of volunteers and volunteer rangers. Some of them are very active. They lead hikes and paddles and help us with our our monthly programs as well as our seasonal programs. But without those volunteers, I really would not be able to have as much of a reach. My job is really to get in front of as many people that live or visit this region as possible. We put out a lot of materials on things to do. We are truly sort of the, I don't know, sort of the gateway for things to do in this region, especially when it comes to understanding our natural resources and experiencing them, as well as our cultural resources, which are historical places and the like. So this year we will be at probably 50 or more community events, large fairs, small town festivals, and that will roll right straight through October. So we're just coming out of the slower season. Um, Rangers are gearing up. They're signing up for programs that I already know are on the books. We have an information tent. We talk to people. We do programs. So it's, it, that's really their key role. But we also do monthly programs, two programs every month. One is called Lash Green Valley Adventures, geared towards adults. And the other one is called Acorn Adventures, geared towards children, And our events are outdoors. Those are great opportunities for families and adults to get out and experience it. We always do a hike or an outdoor program for every turn of the season. That's what I do. But without those volunteers, it wouldn't be possible.
2: I'm guessing during the pandemic, uh, the last Green Valley became even more popular because, of course, we saw a huge uptick in people using the national parks. And, of course, you're connected to the national park system, although you're not a park. As we said, you're a heritage corridor. You're much more than... A national park. So, did you see an increase in traffic? Well, our
0: state parks are really important. And, you know, here in the Lashkin Valley towns, we have some of the largest state parks in the state. Actually, the largest one in Patchogue state forests and state parks. Thousands and thousands of interconnected acres, critical natural habitat. And yes, I won't say they were overrun, but they certainly were very popular. What we did during the pandemic is we went out and did small, little, quick little films at different locations to, to draw highlights to places people can get outdoors, and not just our parks, but also our land trust areas. We're also an area is rich in significant land trust properties that are open to the public, and we also are rich in large watershed protection through United States Army Corps of Engineers. There's four or five large properties. And, you know, the Corps is great. Those are thousands of acres holding water back for flood control, right? But that only happens once in a while. And so there's trails. There's all sorts of camping and all sorts of activities. So we spent our time drawing attention to those resources, and we saw an uptick, huge uptick.
2: Lois, I want to get back to you because, of course, we're always hearing about our green sites coming under attack from possible development and all this sort of thing. I mean, we had a situation earlier this year with Dilley in Killingworth that potentially could have been bought by a developer. Thankfully, the community got behind it, and it's been saved. That's not a situation that you face here, but the point I wanted to make is that you did get reauthorized recently. Talk to us about what that means and why it was so important.
1: It was incredibly important for us. The National Heritage Corridor designation will live on forever, but every few years our authorization for federal funding is set to expire and so from the time we were designated back in 1994 we would have to go back to our congressional delegation every few years to get reauthorized more and more heritage areas have been designated through the years. There are now more than 60 heritage areas around the country. It had become a real problem. There was like a a clog in the pipes when we had 60 plus heritage areas looking to get these short-term reauthorizations. So we worked very hard with all the heritage areas around the country to create legislation, and it passed at the end of December. It was signed into law by the president in January. It's called the National Heritage Area Act, and it finally gave us a longer-term reauthorization. So we are good for uh, federal funding up through 2037, and it's just wonderful to be able to breathe and not have to fight these battles every couple years. Now, that doesn't guarantee us federal dollars every year. We still have to demonstrate that the small federal investment in the Heritage Corridor is worth it, and we do that every single year. So we, we still have to go through the appropriations process, but having that backup authorization
2: is key. What would have happened if it hadn't got reauthorized?
1: We would like to think that our community support would have increased. You know, we we do have a lot of members and we have a lot of donors and partners, business partners, too, corporate sponsors who support our mission. And we're grateful for every dollar they give us. It helps us match all of the federal dollars. We do have to match them one to one. And we would have had to double down and try to significantly increase those Dollars that we come in from private sources, where we would have had to cut programs, uh, but you know we 've done everything we can over the last few years to try to be more and more sustainable, even without those federal dollars. So we have a little bit of a cushion there, and again, you know we're just grateful for the community' support, and um, we hope that that would continue.
2: Yeah, Bill, talk to us a little bit more about the community support because, as you said, uh, being the chief ranger, you also are responsible for programmes but also the volunteer rangers. We hear so much these days that people aren't volunteering as much because... You know, they're so busy and they're having to work two or three jobs just to keep the lights on. I mean, you know, what is the volunteer situation? Are you always looking for volunteers or is it because it's such a great outdoor job? Let's face it, why wouldn't you want to do it?
0: Right. I think all nonprofits that I engage in are looking at issues related to sort of their volunteer leadership. Most of the boards that I've been on are older people. And this next generation, we're really looking to them becoming more involved. That being said, our rangers are a nice combination of younger people and, and, and people my age. The nice thing about the younger folks is that they're good at helping me set up stuff and carry stuff, or they're leading hikes and paddles, and it's a very vigorous group. And so that's, that's been nice, and they're really looking for those types of outdoor experiences But I can speak for other organizations that I'm involved with in that it's always a challenge. And I think part of it, the real challenge for them, as much as anything, is always making sure that they're relevant, that they're relevant to today's audience. And today's audience is very different. I've worked in nonprofits for all my life, all my adult life, and I've worked in museums and, and, and other places like Lash Green Valley. And so it's really important that you understand today's audience because it's a very different audience than when I first started working after graduating college in 1978, before Internet, before email. Well, all we had was typewriters uh, and pay phones and hardline phones and before cell phones. And so the, today's audience is looking, is used to a- accessing information very differently. And I don't how, know if that answers your question. But. Yeah,
2: it does. And But how do you how do you actually... Sorry, Lois, you were going to say something. Yeah.
1: No, I was just going to say, you know, I agree with Bill completely that a lot of the nonprofits are struggling to find board members, you know, people with a long-term commitment to running the organizations. But one place where we're very successful uh, is something like the cleanups that we sponsor. You know, we provide small amounts of money, up to $500, right. for municipalities or nonprofits to organize cleanups. And I think... People love to help out in that way, where there's an immediate impact. They can, they can, they can do, participate in a cleanup on a Saturday morning, feel good, make a difference in their community, and be done, rather than a longer-term commitment right. on a board. So we do have some programs where we see a lot of volunteers, and people very happy to do that.
0: Well, certainly, you know our two big programs, and we do these monthly programs. But our two big programs are sort of those—I call them the shoulder season programs. We're just getting kicking off. It's called Spring Outdoors, which is three months of programs, and it is outdoor hikes, paddles, programs, and it is our partner organizations and our members that are doing those. I mean, I'm doing a couple. Some of the staff are doing a couple, but we've got over a hundred experiences, all done by people volunteering. And it's a way for them, if it's an historical society or if it's a land trust or a core of engineers' property, it gives them an opportunity to, through our big If you like to think of this organization as a large umbrella with lots of other partner organizations underneath it, they can draw even more visibility to themselves. The other program, which has been going on really before we even had our designation, we now call it Walktober. And this is a fall event. It was first called Walking Weekend. Couldn't handle the numbers. We then did two weekends, Walking Weekends. And finally, we said, let's just take over the entire month of October. There are hundreds of walks, programs, experiences, hikes, fairs, festivals, and that would not be possible with all of that. And so, you know, this organization has done really well at being very active and involved with partner organizations that are basically natural resources or cultural or organizations, right? But that's how we deliver to the general audience through our marketing and through our publications much more visibility for what we've got here through those programs. It started, you know, before the National Heritage Quarter by the people that were filing this legislation knowing that we had to draw attention to what we had here. So, yeah, without those partners, we wouldn't be able to deliver.
2: Let's talk a little bit more, obviously. Lois said, I think it was like 84% is, is sort of like forest area, and obviously you've got farms as well. We're always hearing, sadly, about sort of diseases which are impacting our natural environment, things like lanternfly and all that sort of stuff. Talk us through a little bit, Bill, about that, because I'm guessing... Even though it's not your remit, it's probably part of your sort of like surveillance because everybody really needs to keep a lookout for this because it's devastating, isn't it? Right,
0: right. One of the things that Lois and I like to refer to sort of the core areas that we do our work in is woods and water, you know, the W words, woods and water. So we do water quality monitoring, we have a volunteer coordinator, we've got over 100 volunteers gathering data through a sort of a citizen science type program, feeding that data back to the state about the, the, the conditions of our waterways. But when it comes to woods, we also work with forest landowners through some other types of grant funded programs, and I'm very much involved with our state parks, I sit on the board of a land trust And believe me, nature is not as natural as it used to be. And uh, unless I'm in a deep woods of over a thousand acres and I'm in the middle of a large state forest, I'm going to find invasive species of plants wherever I go. I do battle with them on my own properties. We all do. Uh, It's a huge problem, um, but it is what we have. And so we have to deal with it. Also, uh, invasive insects that are having a dramatic impact on our woodlands and our trees and the like. And so it's, it's an issue that we are involved with. I'm involved with it personally and through my volunteer work. But we also pretty much engage with the state uh, Connecticut Department of uh, Energy and Environmental Protection Forestry Division. We work with them quite closely. Yeah, it's an issue. It's an issue mostly in southern New England. You find not as much as you go further north. And um, one that those who are listening to this podcast and would like to be interested in more about in Connecticut, University of Connecticut, UConn, has an invasive plant working group that's good to check out their website. They're doing significantly good work about invasives and about different ways of control.
2: Because, I mean, the bigger picture, climate change, of course, is driving all of this. I'm guessing you've seen in the time that you've been with the Last Green Valley Probably significant changes happening as well. Well, climate
0: change is certainly a factor. Invasives have been a would be a factor with or without climate change. Um, Some people may disagree with me, but yes, that's a factor. Climate change is is impacting our weather quite a bit, and certainly a warmer climate is going to impact the types of trees that survive here in the next 50 to 100 years. We will be more like, you know, the Carolinas, you know, (laughs) before you know it, if not already. But the invasive species of plants really, they came over – a lot of them came from Asia, you know, landscape folks and, and garden centers like that. We all like to have something new. Well, that's something new, whether it's burning bush, uh, winged euonymus that escapes and or if it's, you know, bittersweet, oriental Asian bittersweet or, you know, barberry, uh, Japanese barberry. It's it's dramatically impacted our, our forest and our habitat dramatically. Yeah.
2: Lois, let's get back to you. How well known is the last Green Valley? Because sort of Bill made a point that you do things, people don't always know it's you. So how, how big a deal is that, that you make sure that the name is out there and, and that people understand your mission, who you are, and why it's important that you know, this organization continues doing what it does?
1: We try very hard, and we like to say that the people who know us love us and (laughs) truly enjoy our programs and the work that we do, and we we have a lot of support for our mission. But as you mentioned at the very, very beginning, we cover a huge geography. And with only a handful of staff, even though we've been around for quite a few years now, it is very difficult to reach people. And so we try very hard. Uh, As Bill said, he's out at 50-plus events during the year with his rangers, we have a website. We have a robust social media presence. We have a number of other publications. We have the visitor's guide for the region. It's called Explore that comes out every year. We mm. print 25,000 copies. We distribute them all over the corridor, town halls, uh, libraries. Tourist uh, information business, centers. Tourist information yeah, centers, yeah. businesses. We have an active, you know, we do press releases, we try to get in local papers, we participate with radio and with podcasts, so we try hard. But, you know, it's, there's a lot of noise out there, and so it's, sometimes it's a little bit hard to break through. But we, we do hope that once people find us and discover what we do, that they'll be engaged and mm-hmm. they will appreciate the work we're doing for the region.
0: I try to be in every town. I'd almost rather be at a small-town old home day for a few hours on a beautiful fall day than to be in at the Woodstock Fair and talking to thousands of people within a day. Those are the people who live in those communities, in those little towns. And um, we like to try to do programs. We, we spread them all around as best we can. Uh, my hike in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, only nine towns in massachusetts but we try to get there as much as we can and uh, that's sort of my always my goal is to try to be in every community we
1: also have an active 21 member board of directors too and our board members come from towns throughout the corridor and they in many ways act as ambassadors in their communities Mm -hmm. and so we, we do rely on lots of different volunteers to help us get the message out
2: how can people get involved? Because that's always the important thing as well. I mean, we're going to direct them to your website, etc. But how can people get involved? Because that's an important thing. We all want to make sure that these beautiful areas in this beautiful part of Connecticut—and you know, I, I'm biased, but I think Eastern Connecticut <laughs> is the best part of Connecticut. How can they get involved?
0: It is the best part by far. Come to a program. You know, come to a spring outdoors. Get grab grab our information and and come to a Over program. Check out our website. Uh, give me a call. You know, if you are uh, looking to come up to this area, and you're not sure where to go or where to hike or where to paddle, call Ranger Bill. You know, I can I can help you with that. I can provide those resources to you. Come to one of our programs. Uh, they're free.
2: Bill Reed, Chief Ranger, and Lois Brunich, Executive Director of The Last Green Valley. It's been great talking to you and thank you for educating us on the work that you do and this amazing natural resource that thankfully we have you and your organization looking after for many years to come.
1: Thank you very much. Thank we you. appreciate the opportunity.
2: And for more details about The Last Green Valley, visit their website at thelastgreenvalley.org. <music>
0: Looking for a -a one-of-a-kind experience this season? Visit Wicked Tulips, the place where happiness blooms. Imagine walking through more than 700,000 tulips of all different shapes, colors, and scents. You can find just that at our farm in Preston, Connecticut. We're open seven days a week through the month of May and entry is ticket only. Ready to tiptoe through the tulips? What are you waiting for? Just go to wickedtulips.com for more. You love cookies, so you are going to love the Arc's Golden Chip giveaway. Find the Golden Chip in select bags of the Arc Eastern Connecticut's Classic Crunch Chocolate Chip Cookies and win a free platter of cookies. Visit the arcect.com to find a cookie retailer near you and how eating our cookies support jobs for people with disabilities. Visit our cookie factory at 22 Route 171 in Woodstock, Connecticut. Golden Chips may be hiding in bags there too. Get buying, start winning
1: it's spring the growing season and green valley tree is doing some growing of its own we've moved from our old location to a much bigger space and we have openings for a crane operator and foreman to join our growing team of tree professionals too for details about our services and to apply for our job positions visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com or call us on 860-234-4041
2: time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal announced major funding for the state of Connecticut recently to help deal with PFAS removal from the state's drinking water. $73.5 million has been awarded to Connecticut by the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, and will also be used to remove lead and other contaminants from drinking water systems. Blumenthal said the money was a starting point and issued a stern warning to the state's water companies who will be recipients of the funds. To all of the water companies of Connecticut, Let me say this, you should be making this drinking water cleaner and safer without raising the cost of water to Connecticut consumers. This money is for you to make drinking water clean and safe without charge, without an increase in rates, without additional expense to consumers. PFAS is a group of what are called forever chemicals that don't break down easily in the environment and have been linked to health issues like cancer. Bill Lucy is the Long Island Soundkeeper and said PFAS has made its way not only into drinking water, but also streams, waterways and soil and has become a major problem.
0: So this truly is a societal problem and it really illustrates the need for government. This is exactly why we have these governmental institutions Because there are people who cause this pollution, whether on purpose or not, the courts are going to decide that and figure out how much they need to pay for their share of polluting our water. But that's going to take years. People need to
2: get protected right now. Blumenthal said in Connecticut alone, various state agencies have determined there are 2,400 affected water sites in the state that contain levels of PFAS in some form. It's been a month since the FDA cleared the -the over-the-counter sale of the opioid reversal drug naloxone in the U.S., Details of where the drug can be purchased and how much it will be are still unclear, but sales could start as soon as this summer if the FDA can agree availability and price with the drug manufacturers. Meanwhile, in eastern Connecticut, naloxone continues to be distributed for free by local health districts and departments due to increased opioid overdoses in the region. Jen Maggio is the deputy director of Ledge Light Health District that covers many shoreline towns and says they're working with local EMS providers in what is called a leave-behind program.
1: This is where the ambulance crews have naloxone kits as well as information available to leave behind with patients who have survived an opioid overdose and are either not being transported to the hospital or to leave behind with their family and friends on the scene for future use.
2: Drug overdose is a major public health issue in the United States, with more than 101,000 reported fatal overdoses occurring in the 12-month period ending in October 2022, primarily driven by synthetic opioids like illicit fentanyl. Details of where to get free naloxone kits in southeastern Connecticut can be found at the website nlccares.com or contact your local health department. The Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection is beginning the process that will redesign Seaside State Park in Waterford, the location of a former sanatorium. The state agency has launched a form for members of the public and other interested parties to complete if they want to meet with DEEP later this year to discuss how historic interpretation measures can be incorporated into the new passive park design. Helen Post-Curry is the president of Friends of Seaside State Park and is also the great-granddaughter of Cass Gilbert. the architect who designed the buildings at the historic site. Curry says although she's sad the buildings will have to go, she's come to terms with it.
1: You know, it's all very well to say, but they're historic. They have to be saved. Now my thinking is, okay, but for what? The best we can all do now is to work with DEEP to document the buildings, preserve as much of their materials as we can and create a vision for the best possible park for everyone's enjoyment.
2: Seaside became a state park back in 2014 under the Malloy administration, but since then has failed to find a developer, leading to the buildings on the site to fall into disrepair. The plan now is to develop what is called a passive park site that will consist of trails, landscaping and some buildings, but does mean all of the existing historic buildings will have to be demolished as part of the redesign. And it's a week since the devastating fire closed the Gold Star Bridge between New London and Groton after a car became disabled on the bridge and was hit by a home oil truck trying to avoid it that then flipped over and burst into flames, killing the truck driver. The driver has since been identified as 42-year-old Wallace Fouquet, who was an employee of McCarthy Heating Oil based in Quaker Hill. The family of Fouquet have started a GoFundMe campaign for Fouquet's wife and four children to help cover funeral costs and bills and has struck a chord with thousands as donations are closing in on $200,000. The family have released photos and a statement saying they are overwhelmed by the love and support and messages they have received since the accident.